let's see, is this going to work? There we go, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul says that uh, God had gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for what? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. What I want to emphasize this evening in this passage right here is part of the purpose of a pastor or a teacher is to equip the church with tools to be able to be an effective tool of outreach and evangelism out there and to be able to identify false teaching, false doctrine, or some doctrine that just needs to be cleaned up a little bit. That's not really in line with scripture, but they got a good heart and they're really trying, but they've just been led astray, if you will. Part of my job, part of Pastor Ken's job, part of Pastor Cody's job, is to go ahead and really dig into these things and explain why do we believe what we believe and how can we prove it from scripture? And this isn't just G knowledge. How does it apply to your life and my life today? What we're going to be looking at tonight, really, I, I know it's Wednesday night. I'm going to ask that we put our thinking caps on. I know most of us have worked very long hours, very long day. This first part is going to be very... How many people like data and statistics? Okay, so there's a few, actually. All right, so this first part is going to be very much geeky like I like, all right? But I promise, if you can stay awake until the very end, the reward is going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. What I want to talk about this evening is what I've titled the McNamara Fallacy and Outliers. More or less responding to attacks against eternal security. Or in other words, some of us may have heard the term once saved, always saved. It's an acronym OSAS, once saved, always saved. And so basically, I've watched a lot of debates. I've been in a lot of conversations of people within cults, people of different theologies and doctrines and churches, Arminianists, Provisionists, Calvinists, Lordship, all these other things. And so what tonight is, is realistically what I have learned through conversing with certain people under certain teachings and theologies. What I'm talking about tonight is not stuff that I've researched, is not really stuff that I've made up. This is stuff I have personally experienced time and time again. This isn't a one-and-done type deal. This is a regular occurrence for those under the Calvinist and Lordship crowd. Basically, within uh, Lordship Salvation or Calvinism, there's the teaching that you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. He has to be the pilot in your in your car seat to go ahead and control every aspect of your life. If he's not Lord of your life, he's not what? Lord of all is what they're going to say. And so what you're commonly going to hear for those like us that we believe in eternal security, once saved, always saved, that the moment we turn to, well, the cross is normally up here. You can see how muscle memory it is. Once we turn to the cross of Jesus Christ and look at his finished work for my sins and we trust his payment to cover my sins to get me to heaven... Right then and there, we are sealed with the Spirit of God until the day of redemption, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30. We are sealed and delivered to God never to lose our salvation. So what typically is going to happen, people of this Reformed crowd, they're going to say either, you believe that somebody can live like the devil and still go to heaven. How many people have heard that? 
Okay, hey, a couple. Or they're going to go and say, people who believe in once saved, always saved, believe that Satanists can go to heaven. And what they mean by that is, if I got saved at a younger age, and then I never was discipled, I went astray, I went prodigal, and I got mixed up into some false religion, then I was never truly saved at all. And that proves. And so people that believe in once saved, always saved, say, okay, no matter what religion you adopt later in life, you'll still go to heaven. So we're going to look at these two uh, arguments or attacks against the position of eternal security. People within Lordship and Calvinists, they don't have eternal security. What they actually have is something that I've called probationary security. That your security of salvation is predicated on the meeting of probation requirements of meeting certain works, fruit, and staying in obedience with God. But we're going to get into all that. Neither one of those views understands what eternal security actually means. And like it says there, as I will articulate, that theology teaches condemnation and not restoration. There is a big difference. For instance, the person that goes prodigal, they're going to, when I say they, I don't want to say everyone. I'm going to say majority of those within the theology if somebody goes astray and prodigal, they're going to condemn them and say they were never a genuine Christian. Whereas those that believe in eternal security understand the role of discipleship, and they'll be like, we need to look at restoring them. One's of love, one's of condemnation. And that's what I want to go ahead and argue this evening. But like I said, I need us to try to have our thinking caps on tonight. I know it's a work night, it's late. I promise we're not going to be late because I've already ran through this once or twice and it's a sufficient amount of time for what we have this evening. So if you just bear with me, let's get through this stuff first. The McNamara fallacy and outliers, what are they? Well, how many people uh, remember Robert McNamara during the Vietnam War? He was a Secretary of Defense. Basically, this is where this fallacy was named. The McNamara fallacy is based on the fact that out of, a, out of a, an objective, take the Vietnam War for instance, Robert McNamara assumed we were winning the war simply because of the body count, how many people were dead on one side versus the other, completely ignoring every other line of data or reasoning to include the narrative of the war during the Vietnam and the influence that had on the war as well and the troops. And so this fallacy really teaches and talks about using only one set of data and ignoring the rest. In other words, using quantitative and not qualitative data. What's the difference? Well, quantitative are measurable. This is raw data. How many? How often? Okay, these are things that you can actually go out there. There's one, two, three, four, 28 pews out there, right? Qualitative is more subjective. Why is this happening? How is this happening? Things like that. So we're ignoring the, the qualitative and only focusing on the quantitative. Let me explain this a little clearer. There's a battle. You got warriors battling orcs, okay? Warriors fighting orcs. After the first day of war, the warriors lost 5,000 people. The orcs lost 500. Who's winning the battle? Thoughts? Depends. Most people will say the orcs are winning, but you know what? The orc army only had 1,000 to begin with. The warriors had 100,000. So now there's still 190 warriors for every one orc. 
This is just a simplistic way to explain the McNamara fallacy, using body count and ignoring every other line of evidence to try to make a case, to try to prove an argument. And it's fallacious. This is often committed by those of the Calvinists and the Lordship persuasion by considering only one data point in a Christian's life, that data point being the fruit or the good works somebody does or does not do. That is the only thing they consider for the most part, on whether somebody is genuinely a Christian. This is from Paul Washer. How many people know Paul Washer? I'm sorry, I'm a name dropper, I'm sorry. But uh, Paul Washer out there has this article that says, 12 characteristics to know that you're a true Christian. And this is in the order that he listed them. Look at what's on the very last of the order. Believing the things God, that's the last on him. But he doesn't say anything about believing in the cross. How do you know you're a true Christian? By believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your sins. None of that's on there. This is all things what a Christian does or is currently doing. This is one of the famous Reformed teachers out there. Their eternal life is predicated not on what Jesus did on the cross, but they view your, your genuineness is based on what you do now as a quote-unquote Christian. The only data they point to is whether or not the person is doing good works. They're committing the McNamara fallacy by using this argument to say you're not a genuine Christian. And we'll get more into that. I'm going to be referring to the term hypothetical unicorns, okay, a couple times. So when they bring up this argument that, oh, you believe that a Christian can live like the devil and go to heaven, or you believe Satanists will be in heaven, right? Those are hypothetical unicorns. What do I mean? Because if you ask them, how many people do you know were a Christian and became a Satanist? How many people do you know? They're not going to know any of those people. What they're doing is they're trying to go to the extreme to prove a point. They're not going to say a Christian that just became a drunk and beat their spouse. They're going to go to the far extreme and say, oh, they became a Satanist. We'll deal with that topic in a minute, but I just want to show you these are hypothetical unicorns that they're very fluent in responding and bringing these attacks, but when you ask them, do you know anybody that became a Satanist? No. No. Maybe 1%, and we'll talk about that too. So eternal security, is it biblical? Do we actually have eternal security from the moment we get saved? Well, John chapter 3 says so. Jesus says that we have everlasting life when we believe in Jesus Christ on the cross. John 6.47 says if we believe on him and what he's done, that we have everlasting life. John 10.28, Jesus says they will never perish. Eternal security is a biblical teaching. Matter of fact, eternal life, which is what the cross is about to give us eternal life, Eternal life begins the moment we believe in Jesus Christ and his promise on the cross for our sins. We have to realize that eternal life is a present reality. It's not something to receive in the future, like John Piper will say, as far as final salvation. As a Christian, you have eternal life this moment. That's clearly what Scripture teaches. By mere definition, eternal life is not eternal if it can be lost. That's a logical contradiction. Otherwise, you've got to call it probationary life, which is what they actually teach, but they won't say it. 
You are eternally secure from the moment of faith. Why? Because God gives you eternal life for looking and living. And we know, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30, amongst many other verses, that the moment we trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins, we are healed, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption, which is the day of rapture, which means if we are sealed by God through the Holy Spirit, the moment we get saved... The only person that could break that seal is God. And guess what? God is not man that he should lie. He promised if we believe, we have everlasting life. And so eternal security is a biblical concept. So what these people will do within this theology is they will appeal to your emotion. They will appeal to your emotion to prove an argument, to try to make a case. This is actually a fallacy. It's called the appeal to emotion fallacy. Basically, they're going to try to stir your emotions up so that you can agree with their argument. That's exactly what they're doing because the first time somebody says, you think a Satanist is going to be in heaven, <laughs> that puts me out like, Satanist in heaven? What are you talking about? Oh. But they're appealing to your authority or to your emotion in a negative sense to get you to agree with their argument without considering the premises they're doing there. McNamara fallacy, what role does this play within responding to the attacks? Remember, first part, McNamara fallacy is only using one data point to create an argument, to prove a point. And in this case, the only data they're using is whether or not somebody is doing good works to prove if they're a Christian or not. That's one data they're using. They're ignoring the fact that so-and-so would say, yeah, at 10, 10 years old, I know, I truly believed in, in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. I truly know that. They ignore that. They ignore the fact that through life, troubles come. And not everybody responds to trouble the same exact way. And sometimes the troubles in our life make us take a detour, makes us go prodigal, makes us do actions that we otherwise would not take. And so there's an aspect of discipleship and growth. I've talk, talked about this the other few weeks back. The church is doing a great job evangelizing people, getting people, you know, to accept the free gift of salvation, but they're leaving them there. There's no discipleship. So we have a whole bunch of people that are brand new Christians, but they have no idea what it looks like to look like Christ. And so what I expect a brand new Christian... Matt, did you expect me when I first got saved to... You know, all of a sudden, you know, come to church every day and read my Bible every day and, and pray every day. Did you expect that from me right away? <laughs> Disappointed. Life is full of disappointments, Matt. <laughs> but you see what I mean. So McNamara fallacy, the first part of this deep thing I want to talk about, and we're going to recap all this in a very simplistic fashion. McNamara fallacy is when the Calvinists or the Lordship, they'll say, you, you know you're a genuine Christian if you do X, Y, or Z. We saw the list of 12 things by Paul Washer. They're ignoring all the other points on whether somebody believed in Christ for eternal life at one point in time. They're ignoring the fact of maybe this person was never discipled. So yeah, they're living like the devil because they don't know what the devil looks like. You know, they think he, he's okay, whatever. So what about outliers? Outliers are a little more difficult to understand, if you will. Outliers, these really help us deal with what I call the hypothetical unicorns. These arguments people make that nobody knows who they are, 
But they still make these arguments. Outliers allow us to see. Basically, what is an outlier? An outlier, and, and I'm not a statistics guy, so I had to do some study on outliers. Then I had to vet it through Oscar to make sure I was, like, accurate, you know, because he's the data guy, and I, I know how to use Excel. That's about all I can do. But I create some pretty cool formulas, and I can make cells different colors based upon different things. But I don't know. Connie can probably do stuff a lot more than I can on Excel, too. But anyways... For sake of argument tonight, outliers are when you are gathering data, statistics, and so you have all your data that's been, you got all your data, statistics, points, and you have an average of all those data. Say your average, you collected a bunch of numbers, and your average is like 15, whatever the case is, right? But you got a couple that's like two, or you got one that's like 112, you know? So typically, an outlier is any point of data that falls around two times or more outside of the norm or the average. I want to illustrate it like this. Say you got a zoo. How many people like the zoo? Zoos are fun, right? Yeah. Okay, you got a zoo, and you have 10 giraffes. Every time I was practicing this, I kept saying elephants. Rebecca was like, elephant? Those aren't elephants. I was like, oh, yeah, giraffes. You got 10 elephants. There you go, elephants. You got 10 giraffes at your zoo, right? Guess what? Today is annual adult giraffe measurement day. I have no idea what that is. I just made it up for the sake of this argument. Today is the day we have to measure our giraffes. And so you call your employee out there to go ahead and do a tape measure of all your giraffes, right? So he goes out there and he gets his measurements. Mike is 15 and a half feet. Russ is seven and a half feet. Uh, Joe is 15 feet. Will is 16 feet tall. Emery is 15 feet. Preston's eight feet. Bill, you're 16 feet. Uh, you got Matt, who's 17 and a half feet. So that's pretty good. Brock, you're 18 feet along with Jim, 18 feet. Okay, so, okay, you, you got your measurements, right? Remember, these are adult giraffes. There's two of them that are outliers. Your average giraffe height is 16. All these giraffes are about the same age, but you have two that are well outside of the average. So there's some things you got to look at. Is this an inaccurate measurement? Did the person forget to write the number one when they wrote down eight, seven and a half, whatever the case is? Are the numbers correct? Was he just lazy and he was like, hey, the giraffe won't stand up, so I'm going to just do this, right? With outliers, Sometimes people will just see those numbers, they'll just dismiss them, they'll throw them away. They're either not part of this, right? But what the Institute Standards of Technology reveals is the fact that with outliers, the very first thing we need to do is we need to study them and research them to find out, is there a reason they showed up? These different possibilities. If there's a reason, find out if they're going to be repeatable. So we look at all this, and we find out, guess what? The numbers are correct. We went out there, we took measurements again on the drafts, and yep, they are correct. If we just threw those numbers out, we would never know that we just won the Nobel Peace Prize because we found a gene within these drafts to allow us to breed miniature drafts. Because we didn't throw away the outliers, that data that doesn't align with the average, because we didn't throw away it, we discovered something about it that is beneficial to society and now everybody can have a miniature giraffe. How many people want a miniature giraffe? I mean, they're pretty neat, you know. I got a fish that looks like a giraffe. We call him a Venustis Clark. Come Clark Wellington. He's a fancy-looking fish. He's got spots like a giraffe, and uh, it looks like he got a tuxedo. That is outliers 
in a nutshell. So now everybody knows everything there is to know about outliers, right? It's pretty simple. What in the world does the McNamara fallacy and outliers have to do with responding to the attack on eternal security? Now remember, with this, when we're considering the outliers on these two specific questions, the first thing we need to ask is, are these unicorns real? Do they even know anybody that fits either of these categories? Because if they don't, you can call them out right then and there. But then, when we're actually considering the outliers, for those that are living like the devil, if you will, we could clearly see when we're researching data, maybe we're talking to them, it's a discipleship issue. They don't know what it is to look like Christ. Maybe they don't have the right depth of appreciation that we were bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. And that comes through discipleship. That comes through growth as a Christian. As far as the other one, sometimes those are crises that occur. Maybe something traumatic happened into their life. Maybe they lost a child. Maybe they've been praying for answers for something for decades and it's never come true and it, that prayer answer is long gone now. So they just gave up. Maybe they were pushed out of the faith because of hypocrisy within the church. We don't know. I want to illustrate it in the sense of actual conversations I've had and with this will be done. Now remember, McNamara fallacy is when somebody uses only one data point to make an argument. If you're not doing good works, you're not a genuine Christian. Outliers is the fact of finding out, okay, if there is that 1% that do these things they're saying, they're outliers. They're not the norm. So just like what we do with statistics, we have to research the outlier to find out why it's there. We need to do that as well. Why are they living like devil? Why have they turned to some other religion or no religion at all? These are actual conversations I've had, so enjoy the comic. What saved always saved eternal security is truly a wonderful biblical truth. Yay, right? Woo, we love eternal security. Oh, you believe you can live like devil and be saved. Oh, you believe Satanists are going to go to heaven. Honest conversation. Honest conversation. Well, how do you know if someone's saved? Can you see their heart and know if they truly believe? How do you know I'm a Christian right now, right here? Is it because what I do? You have no idea whether I'm doing it from my heart, whether I'm doing it from the spirit, whether I'm doing it from my flesh. You may see me doing good things and feeding the homeless, but guess what? Maybe I'm just doing that for show. Maybe I'm doing community service that nobody knows about. Now you think I'm a Christian. Why do you think I'm a Christian? Because of my testimony. But do you really know that I'm a Christian? Why not? Because only God really knows if I'm truly a Christian or not. You can see what I do, but you might have a misapplication of what I'm doing and what it means as far as my eternal standing. But still, we have this thing of this common unity. I don't want to get lost in that, but this common unity and certain standards that we do and and this fellowship that we have. But for all sakes and purposes, we don't truly know who's a Christian because we can't see inside the hearts. Okay, we'll get more into that in our James study. So I say, how do you know? Maybe I'm in the money. By their fruits, you will know them. Matthew chapter 7, right? After all, Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. I always use that. Fruits. Like I said, can you tell if they're spirit-born or flesh-born? And also, isn't that passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Not beware of false believers, right? 
Oh, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross and die daily, right? Well, you know the difference between a disciple and a believer? Not all disciples, not all believers follow that rabbi. You could believe in the rabbi's teaching all day long, but only some people actually follow that teaching. It doesn't negate their belief. Oh, you can't just say a prayer and live like the devil and expect to go to heaven. I agree, it's not a prayer that grants everlasting life, but belief in Jesus' payment on the cross for our sins that grants us everlasting life. So you believe someone can live like a devil and still be a Christian. I do because salvation is not based upon what we do, it's based upon what he's done on the cross. Also, don't forget that God's going to discipline the wayward believer according to Hebrews chapter 12. For whom God loves, he chastens. And if we're not chastened when we're wayward, we're called according to the Bible, bastard, without a father. It says it doesn't necessarily mean a person is not a Christian, but it means that they need to be corrected. On the other hand, you don't consider the question on, has this person been truly discipled? Instead, you throw rocks at them and say, you're not a genuine Christian. You don't try to disciple them, you merely condemn them. He that endures to the end shall be saved. A genuine Christian will persevere in the faith. I agree. Christian will endure to the end because of Jesus Christ and not because of us. Plus, a Matthew 24 passage in the Olivet Discourse is not talking about you and I in the church today, but that's for another day. Once we believe in Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, we are adopted into his family and promise never to be cast out regardless of what happens into our life. God is faithful even when we are faithless, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 13. You teach that a Satanist who once prayed a prayer will be in heaven. You believe there's Satanists in heaven. Now we're getting good. You're committing the appeal to emotion fallacy. How many of these Christians turned Satanists do you actually know? Hmm. Hmm. Let's say that there are 1% of these Christians out there that have abandoned the faith, that have went agnostic. We'll say they even become Satanists. They would be outliers. They're not the norm within the church. And as an outlier, we should research and find out What's going on? Why do they say they believed once and now they turn to some other religion or no religion at all? First, I would wonder, do they truly believe the gospel of the Bible? Do they, were they brought up in a cult, in a false religion? Do they believe a Jesus that does not save? Or did they believe the Jesus of the Bible? Maybe they never did truly believe. Maybe they just used the name Christianity as a banner like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So you're right, maybe they were never saved and now they're a Satanist. Now, if someone truly did, yes, they're going to heaven, but I would want to understand why they walked away from the faith. What led to that? Was it a crisis? Was it some trauma they went through? Was it unanswered questions? They couldn't reconcile eternity. They couldn't reconcile the problem of evil and suffering with a holy and righteous and good God, the problem of theodicy. Maybe they couldn't reconcile these things, so they walked away. Maybe it was hypocrisy, but still, I want to know. I want to see if God would use me to help them heal and be reconciled back to God. I want to look at these outliers. When I hear of Christians leaving the faith, I want to find out more. Because we're called to be in what? The ministry of reconciliation. To be used to restore that relationship back with God. However, with your theology, you immediately condemn those people. And in your condemning, you leave no room, no room. You leave no hope 
for a restoration back to the Father, and instead you kick rocks at them and condemn them and say, you were never truly saved. So, of course, they don't want nothing to do with your God. They want nothing to do with it. Your theology pushes this Christian farther away from God. You don't care about the trauma they went through. You don't care about the emotional loss they went through. You don't care about the unanswered questions they have. Your theology says, I don't see this, so guess what? You're not a Christian. What do they want to do with God then? You're pushing them away. Rather than being used of God to help this person heal, you condemn them. Your theology is a theology of condemnation and legalism. Eternal security is one of love, mercy, and grace. One's lack of works or leaving the faith does not reveal they were genuine or not. It reveals they need to be discipled or that they need to heal from a trauma or a crisis. Thanks, McNamara, fallacies and outliers. You see, the whole point is this. When we really understand one's theology, the arguments that sound legitimate really aren't. When we understand that if we try to gauge somebody's salvation based upon their works or lack thereof, we give them no chance of hope or reconciliation through our ministry. Rather, we're pushing them farther away from God saying, if you're truly a Christian, you're going to stop doing that. And if you don't have no desire to stop doing that, then I don't even think you're a Christian. Paul Washer said, I don't know if you caught it on the earlier slide, that if those 12 characteristics aren't found in you, you need to have concern for your soul. Is that the message that we need to give out? When we truly understand eternal security and the love of God, we truly understand that for those people that may be living like the devil, that say they're Christians, or those people who may have walked away from the faith that they may have once held, within this view, our view, it seeks to reach them where they are. It seeks to talk to them about their struggle, their trauma. It seeks to reconcile them back to God. It's all about trying to help that one sheep out of the 99. It's all about helping that prodigal find his way home. The prodigal's never going to come back home if we're kicking rocks at him. He's going to keep walking down that dirt road. And that's not what God wants. And so if anything, if you hear these arguments you're not a genuine Christian, if X, Y, or Z, please know there is clear evidence against that argument. And that evidence is one of love, compassion, grace, truth, and the desire to help somebody get back right with God. And that's what ministry is about. It's not about condemning. It's about trying to help reconcile people. Essentially, that's the McNamara fallacy, and those are outliers used in a practical purpose. So I do have these slides in PDF format or PowerPoint, whatever. If you want them, I know it was a lot. Let me know, I'd be glad to share them. But I know we're gonna hear these arguments and attacks again. And so God may use this to help you correct somebody's thinking or help you restore somebody in a right relationship with God. God, I thank you for this evening, and I thank you for this journey you've led me through with all the debates I've been watching and listening to, and just all the conversations I've had with people of different theology, and I thank you for what I've learned through it. But Lord, ultimately with tonight, I pray that this would just equip us with another tool that we can be used to help those 
that are trapped in bondage, that are trapped without being discipled, that have questions or trauma or distresses that need to find healing. Lord, forgive us when we're throwing rocks and allow us to be used of you to help be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. We thank you for your unending love and we thank you for the promise of eternal security and eternal life which begins now. Lord, allow us to take this message to the world and those within our realm of influence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.